If family law is part of your legal practice, you will have been impacted by the 1 September 2021 changes to family court practice. Hosts Julian Morrow and Susan Warder, partner at Mills Oakley Lawyers and family law accredited specialist, unpack the changes and the practical ways in which family law practices are adapting to them. Susan Warder, welcome to Risk On Air. Thank you, Julian. Good to be here. There were obviously big structural changes in family law from the 1st of September 2021 with the new Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia, the all-in-one package. What have been the practical implications of this big structural change? Uh, Julian, the, the changes have been incredibly significant for family law practitioners, probably the most significant in the 30 years that, uh, that I've been in practice. Mm. And the changes impact us in different ways. So I might spend a few minutes taking you through those uh, for the benefit of, of listeners. Please do. The central practice direction was issued by the court when the Family Court and the Federal Circuit Court merged. So essentially from 1 September 2021, the family law case management is all set out and contained in the central practice direction. And as well as practitioners reading it, they should be sending it to their client at the earliest possible opportunity yeah, because it really does set out, doesn't it, the, the 10 core principles that underpin the entire exercise of the jurisdiction? Absolutely. And I think if a client is able to understand what those principles are, it makes your job easier as a practitioner in trying to explain to them why certain compliance requirements are mandatory and why they must produce certain documents why proceedings potentially cannot commence in certain matters without compliance with some pre-action procedures, et cetera. So the central practice direction is where I would suggest everybody start, as well as sharing that with their clients. It is a lengthy document, but it is written in plain English, so I don't think most clients would struggle with, with working through the document, and I think it makes your job easier as a lawyer working with a client in a family law matter when they have also familiarised themselves with the contents. That is really interesting because you might not think in other areas of practice that it's a great idea to send off practice notes to clients, but it is true that these notes are well written and clear and they really do, I think, set the tone for how to approach uh, the litigation, and you've found that it is helpful for clients to actually engage with it? I have, and what you've just said is one of the key reasons that I think it's helpful. It's, it helps set the tone. Mm. And often you need to explain to a distressed, angry, anxious client that sending a letter in the tone that they might think is appropriate would be entirely inappropriate and inconsistent with the expectations the court has of practitioners, particularly since the 1st of September. And it would be very difficult for a practitioner to justify sending some of the correspondence that a client may want to be sent, but by the same token, be able to explain to a registrar or a judge at a court event that their correspondence fulfils the obligations that is set out in the central practice direction and expected of a practitioner appearing in the federal circuit court and family court. So the tone is really important. And when you read the central practice direction, as you obviously have, 
you've picked up that we are trying to work in a more conciliatory way, even if we are in litigation, to narrow issues, to fast-track processes and, and to keep matters moving forward. And, and that really goes back to those core principles and what the court was hoping to achieve. And I suppose my question there, Susan, would be, have you found that in actual practice, this new structure and the new direction has really changed things in terms of the way matters run and are managed? Absolutely. We have found that the compliance with the timetable set by a registrar, compliance with orders and directions is now not a guideline. You can no longer be scrambling the the afternoon before a court event trying to comply with a court order. Well, you can still do that, but you will be in some difficulty appearing the next day if you are unprepared or even worse, if you have to appear and say, we have not been able to comply with this direction. Now, by the same token, there are some directions that you may not be able to meet or timelines, but provided you've taken the appropriate steps, you've written to the other side, you've given them ample notice, you've set out why uh, you can't file a particular document by a certain time or produce a document by a certain time. And then another good practical tip would be to jointly with your opponent write to the court with a proposal to get an extension in those circumstances where it would be warranted. And I'm not suggesting that practitioners do this for every court event, but if, for example, you're getting documents from overseas and they might be more difficult to access, or if the delay has been caused by a third party and it's a legitimate delay that you can discuss with your opponent, then get on the front foot. Don't wait till the morning of court to turn up at court and tell the court, well, this matter can't progress. It hasn't for the last three weeks because we don't have this information. Because mm. core principle number six is all about non-compliance. What are your observations, Susan, about the way the court has been applying that principle? In my appearances before judicial registrars, senior judicial registrars and judges, I think there is a really significant emphasis on compliance even if practitioners arrive at an interim hearing and they may have filed their material, but they haven't filed their case outline, for example. And and I saw this happen earlier this week. Fortunately, it wasn't one of my matters, but (laughs) parties there with lawyers for a matter that had been listed, it seemed very quickly before a senior judicial registrar and a refusal by the court to deal with the matter because the case outline which was due to be filed two days before that interim hearing, had not been filed by either side. And the matter was just adjourned. So two parties there hoping to be heard quickly and the court saying, well, you haven't done what you need to do. In another matter, I am aware that the court has vacated an interim hearing date and sent an email to lawyers on both sides and the independent children's lawyer vacating a hearing date the day before a hearing because one of the parties did not comply with the court's directions in the preparation for that hearing. And it was a party who had not spent time with children for some six months. So really disadvantaged by the adjournment, but the court didn't Mm. even give them an opportunity to appear on the morning and explain why there'd been non-compliance. They simply wrote on a Thursday afternoon saying, 
this hearing won't won't go ahead for this reason. And these sound like the sorts of issues that potentially have adverse cost implications. Absolutely. I might turn to costs now. One of the most significant changes is Rule 12.15. And this is a rule that practitioners who practice in the area of family law or who might not have family law as a big part of their practice but undertake some family law litigation should read and if they have employed solicitors that do some family law work for them, then those lawyers should certainly be familiar with with Rule 12.15 because the court can now make costs orders against a lawyer. Whilst the court has always been able to make a costs order, there's two significant approaches that the court's taken to vigorously deal with the procedural matters since the new rules were introduced. And they are these. The court introduced the national contravention list as part of the rules and lawyers who appear in that list may also be subject to personal costs orders if the application they've filed, the contravention application, or the defence to that application is determined to be frivolous or lacks merit or where there's been non-compliance with the rules of the court before they filed that application. The introduction of national contravention list is really important and welcomed by the profession, but important for family lawyers to understand that they may be subjected to personal costs orders if the judicial registrar who is uh, hearing the contravention application determines that it was a frivolous application. The second thing I wanted to touch on is there is a significant emphasis in the rules on making costs orders, not only against parties. What's really important is costs orders against lawyers as a result of their non-compliance with their obligations before they file an application in the court. So more emphasis on pre-action procedures. We've had pre-action procedures in place before the 1st of September. However, if a practitioner now files an application and has not taken the steps that are articulated and very clearly set out in the pre-action procedures, then an application for costs can be made against that lawyer. Rule 12.15 sets out that an order for costs can be made against the lawyer or an employee or even an agent. So for some practitioners who might be unable to attend at court for whatever reason, they may send an agent along. And that costs order will be made if costs have been thrown away as a result of the lawyer not complying, either not complying with an order, not complying with the pre-action procedures or improper or unreasonable conduct. And finally, delay. If delay is caused by by the non-compliance And the rules cast a higher onus upon lawyers in proceedings than ever has previously existed in family law historically. And the person who's applying for the costs order or if the court is making a cost order of its own motion against a lawyer, the onus is on them to obviously demonstrate a nexus. There has to be a connection with what the lawyer hasn't done and the delay, for example. Obviously, this is on the books now, but the big question, I suppose, is are we seeing these orders being made? Absolutely. And I say that with certainty because I hadn't been in a list where I've 
seen a judicial registrar make a cost order against a practitioner. Uh, I've heard it being threatened about it occurring on the next occasion if certain things uh, aren't done. Uh, I have heard notations being made to orders by judicial registrars setting it up for the next occasion and obviously hoping that the practitioner then complies. But I've made some inquiries in my preparation for uh, speaking with you from two judges, one in Parramatta Registry and in the Sydney Registry, as well as judicial registrars and senior judicial registrars, and they tell me that these cost orders are being made. Mm. They're not only being made in a directions hearing list, but they're being made if people turn up for a hearing, solicitors, barristers, the parties are there, the matter's listed for two days, and it can't proceed because of some late application that's being made by one of the one side, documents being filed late. And in fact, I was told by one judge that the cost order that was made in that matter was made against the solicitor and barrister in different proportions by her because of the circumstances that led to the court having to adjourn the matter, which was listed for two days, and the waste of judicial resources, which remain still very precious, although we have more judges appointed to the registry and matters are certainly progressing very quickly there is still a great deal of competition for that judicial airtime. Many of us ask the court to give our clients who, who have matters that need some urgent determination often very early on in a matter. So yes, the cost orders are being made. Well, while the chills down the spines of solicitors and barristers proportionally sort of wear off after that, Susan, uh, in terms of the pace of matters, are you finding that things are getting to court quicker under the new regime? They certainly are, and I can say that regardless of the registry I've been in, whether it's Sydney, Parramatta, Newcastle or interstate, matters are progressing very quickly. In fact, more quickly than practitioners have ever seen before, and it does create a lot of pressure for a practitioner because they have their obligations to comply with the timetable that's been set by the court and the directions that have been made. They don't want to be in breach of those orders for all the reasons I've just identified. The client is usually very happy about an early listing that's being offered and wants you to take that date as soon as possible, but it does create a great deal of pressure ensuring you have the resources to do the work quickly and up until the 31st of August last year, if I met with a new client who was about to embark on litigation, I would often say they could expect three years from start to finish in the Sydney Registry of the Family Court. And we've been saying that for some time. There were long delays and those delays were, were often published in the media and, and people knew that it was a long, slow, expensive and emotional process. Now I've changed my advice and say to people, you'll probably get a final hearing in 12 months. Now, bear in mind, most matters that are filed in the Federal Circuit Court and Family Court settle along the way. Dispute resolution focus at the beginning is really even more significant now with the new rules than it was. But the family law jurisdiction has always had a very high settlement rate. But for those matters that were litigated, three years was not an unusual wait. And in fact, there are matters being heard and determined now 
that were commenced five years ago, Julian, that are just coming up for hearing because the court now has resources with new judges being appointed to all of the registries. They are trying to clear out that backlog. So if you've had a file sitting around for four or five years, suddenly you're getting an email from the court, a case management hearing very swiftly with a judge saying, well, I want this matter to be prepared for hearing and your hearing will be and you'll get a date in the next few months. Wow. So lots on the plate of family law practitioners. For anyone listening now, Susan, what would your tips be on how practically to manage the risks of a non-compliance order and adverse cost implications and just dealing with the new case management system? Look, I think a, a practical tip, which hopefully most listeners or all listeners uh, already have in place is diarise all of these directions, but diarise them with notice to yourself. So maybe a couple of weeks before something's due, ensure your correspondence to your client stresses to them and imparts that urgency on the client that they need to be actively trying to get the information that's required because often it's source documents that they might need to get for an old bank account, an old loan. So really get your client engaged and committed because that way you fulfilled your obligation. If you've set it all out for them and and they continue letting you down in not being able to progress your matter, then you have a much better outcome if there is a discussion about costs and a cost order being made you can essentially say to your client, well, this has all been articulated in my correspondence to you. So I think that's really important. Cost notices, Julian, I haven't touched on those, but I think it's important at this point to also remind practitioners at every court event, whether it's a procedural directions hearing or a final hearing, you must have filed with the court your cost notice. And it should go to the court the night before or if needed the morning of. And it's a cost notice that you've served on your client and your opponent, as well as ensuring the court has your cost notice. Because I sit in many directions hearing lists where I hear judicial registrars express their frustration. Sometimes they will stand a matter to the end of the list whilst a practitioner emails their cost notice to the court. And they are using those cost notices as tools to try and help people focus on the issues and uh, a judicial registrar might express some concern about what parties have each spent at that stage already and why they should look to, for example, move to a private mediation and attempt a resolution of the matter because of the costs that they have incurred and the costs that they will incur if they don't resolve the matter. So get your cost notices finalised and really turn your mind to setting out in those as best as you can, forecast what the costs are likely to be because they are on the court record and I suspect at the end of the hearing if one party hasn't done as well as the other and may be entitled to cost, people will look back at those cost notices and look at the estimates that were given to each of them. Well, just finally, Susan, you mentioned that most family law matters, of course, settle. Settlement can be tricky in terms of the psychological dynamics in any area of law, but no more so than in family law. I wonder if we could finish up by hearing your thoughts on some of the challenges and your advice about how to approach advising on settlement when things are really emotionally charged. 
I think one of the tools that we've been trying to use, not just in our office, but I think most family law practitioners use increasingly in the last couple of years is the mediation tool and using it early. So clients are emotional and distressed often at the beginning of a matter and need some resolution about some urgent issues. If you can make contact with your opponent really quickly and try and set up a forum that allows you to reach an agreement about some of the interim issues. And even if it isn't a mediation, what family law practitioners do well are informal settlement conferences, which are a really useful tool to get together quickly to try and put out the fire with some of those urgent issues or put a Band-Aid to keep everybody focused on the bigger picture and trying to get the necessary information that both sides need to make a more informed decision about which way they should go. Of course, one of the issues, Julian, is generally in family law matters, there is always one side that may be empowered by delay. So despite your best efforts in trying to progress a matter quickly and trying to resolve it as quickly as you can for your client, if the other person benefits from that delay because they may be living in a home that they don't want to leave, the home might be proximate to the children's school, it's a party that might know that at the end of the case they can't retain the home, they're less likely to move as quickly as you would like them to to participate in, in anything I've just suggested. Our clients are really distressed and very rarely do you get those distressed clients in a state where they might be open to a final resolution right at the beginning. But I do find if you can try and approach it so that those urgent pressing issues, often about parenting matters or interim financial issues or housing can be resolved, then it gives you a better foundation to ultimately resolving the matter more quickly. Susan Water, thanks very much for speaking to us on Risk On Air. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode on current risks in legal practice to stay up to date.